0: Hello, and thanks for downloading episode eight of the SAP UK podcast. On today's show, we're talking all about social enterprise, the businesses that are putting social and environmental purpose over profits. We're joined by some hugely inspirational speakers to share their insights on what we see as the future of business. So let's get started. My name is Adam Clatworthy, and the topic for today's discussion is business with purpose. Joining me online are four fantastic guests with a wealth of experience in procurement and social enterprise. We have Cecilia Crossley, founding director of From Babies With Love, a social enterprise that sells organic baby clothing and gifts, donating 100% of its profits to partner charities that work to support orphaned and abandoned children around the world. Next is Jamali Zell. Founder of Change Please, a social enterprise that uses coffee as a way out of homelessness. It trains homeless people to become baristas and provides a London living wage job, housing and bank account and therapy to support its beneficiaries. Then we have Jamie Palmer, co founder and CEO of Social Supermarket, an e commerce platform created to connect everyday consumers with social enterprises who sell high quality products that tackle important social and environmental challenges. And finally, from SAP, we have Kelvin Ward, who is our purchasing manager here in the UK. To kick off this episode, I'm joined by both Jamie and Kelvin, who can set the scene on the importance of social enterprise here in the UK. So Kelvin, you can explain this far better than I can, but you've been a huge champion for social enterprises in the UK. Why don't you start by telling us what a social enterprise actually is?
1: Right. Well, a social enterprise depends upon which part of the global world you sit in has different meanings. Um, It's recognised that Social Enterprise UK is the leading body globally. And they've got a number of criteria that they look at when they credit uh, a company as being a social enterprise. And I'm going to touch upon the main three elements because these same three elements are also being identified in social enterprise bodies in Canada and in the US. So a social enterprise, um, it's got to have a social mission, obviously. Um, and it's got to have that explicitly stated in their documents. The second part is that the, um, the monies that they earn has got to come from services And goods. So it is not a charity. And the third criteria, which is, for me, the most important part, is that at least 50% of the profit that they make goes into the social impact. So that's the three criteria that we look at when we look at onboarding a social enterprise. So, Kelvin, why don't you tell us about why why is this so important
0: to SAP Uh, and why has it been such a huge passion point for yourself? Because you've been really leading the charge over the last 18 months and onboarding 21 partners is no mean feat.
1: 21 partners, it wasn't all down to me. And I'll, I'll touch upon what other companies are doing to help us or our suppliers are helping us do this. But yes, it was, it was, it was great to onboard these 21 companies. Um, but thanks got to go to our tier one suppliers and also uh, GRF in particular, who were very supportive of the program. But what, you know, first of all, you asked about why it's important to SAP. Um, it is one of our CSR strategic programs. Um, Also by employing social enterprises, it fits into our diversity and inclusion strategy. And just to give a bit more background on that, um, in CSR, we talk about accelerating best run nonprofits and social enterprises. And we do this by the work with the Social Enterprise World Forum. The relationships we have with social enterprise bodies, such as Social Enterprise UK, We do it, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, Adam, about using our Ariba technology. And now um, we use social enterprise in our supply chain. With diversity and inclusion, we know from a recent report that social enterprises uh, provide more jobs for disadvantaged people and more diversity in leadership teams than other SMEs. So those are the reasons why it's important to SAP. Passion for myself. Um, I get inspired by uh, these companies. You look at what they are doing with their, the work that they're doing, their social impact that they're making, and it can't um, stop you from being blown away by the causes that they are uh, supporting. You know, and as a procurement manager, you know, I always look for value. Um, whatever we buy in. And I also believe, and I dare say it very often, you know, the power of and. So I've always looked at getting more for the money that we spend, um, whether it be a higher specification, a more innovative product, maybe some additional services. With social enterprises, I think we get more. We get all of what I've just been speaking about, plus more. You know, and I haven't worked with the, you know, the 20 plus social enterprises for the last 18 months and speaking to many more, and I, I don't know how many we've spoken to in SAP, but it must run over a hundred now. I'm just inspired by their stories and each one's got a different story to tell.
0: Great. And, and you mentioned um, Kelvin, Adair, Adair Fox Martin. She's obviously been a massive um, champion for this at a, at a global leadership level. Um and, a couple of weeks ago now she announced the five and five by 25 pledge um, so did you want to tell us a bit about what that actually means um for those who weren't aware of this announcement
1: five percent of addressable spend um we've committed to spending that with social enterprises and with diverse suppliers so five percent on each of those so ten percent of our spend overall by 2025 Addressable spend, we will spend with these companies. So the question is, what is classified as addressable? Now, addressable spend is where we've identified that there's a social enterprise in one of our spend categories in that particular country. And that's irrespective if the social enterprises in that category are competitive in their pricing. So once we identify there's a company in facilities, facilities becomes an addressable spend area. We do know that with the work that we do in the UK and in Canada and in uh, Australia, that the countries will have different elements of addressable spend. The UK market is much more mature and has got a lot more social enterprises available in there. So just as an example, in the UK, There are social enterprises in facilities, in HR, in IT, and marketing. So we are classifying those as addressable spend. Non-addressable spend categories can include such items as car fleet. It will be the majority of our third-party spend and the majority of our IT spend. The other part of the pledge um, is that we are inviting our customers, our partners, our strategic suppliers to take part in this and to join us on this initiative. So that's the two distinct elements, the work that we are doing, but also the work that we're asking our ecosystem to do.
0: And what is it we're doing here in the UK? I mentioned uh, briefly earlier about some of the partners we've onboarded, but I also understand that we're leading the way from a global perspective. So do you want to just give us a brief overview of, of what we've been doing here in the UK over the last 18 months?
1: Yeah. Just, just first on the reason why the UK was selected, um, because um, it's important to, to realise, you know, SAP UK, it wasn't something that GPO came up with initially. This was something that was looked at by Adair. And it was looked at because we thought within the company that the UK had the greatest opportunity for us to make an impact before we rolled this out on a global basis. Um, And the reason behind this was that Social Enterprise UK is recognized as the leading global authority on social enterprises. And we have the biggest network of social enterprises in the UK. Um, And on that basis, um, you know, in terms of what we try to achieve, it gives us a great amount of opportunities you know, in terms of achievements, you mentioned we've got 21 companies already on board with a 750k forecasted spend. Um, it has slowed down this year. Obviously, COVID-19 has hit many businesses and, you know, SAP is no difference. Uh, we have had a number of companies that we wanted to on board, um, but we've had to leave it until to leave it later this year or next year. And just two examples, uh, we were hoping to roll out childcare vouchers uh, this year, but with the majority of people working at home, it doesn't make sense to implement them. And there's a taxi company service, and we were going to roll that out in September. Um, the taxi service that runs in Maidenhead office, and again, we're not using it, so that's been shelved. But I would like to say, you know, we are still looking at using social enterprises and pleased to say that in the fit out at the scalpel, uh, we're using two social enterprises there. So that's now 23 that we're using. And there's still potential that a few more maybe awarded contracts. Just as important. um, And we talked I talked earlier on about, you know, involving our ecosystem you know, what we've managed to be able to do in the UK is to influence our tier one strategic suppliers. So since we got involved, we've helped Compass or influenced Compass to join SEUK as a partner. And three of our suppliers, ISS, ProAV and BW, have all joined SEUK as members. And finally, what else we've also been able to do? um, SAP provides funds to our partners to spend on events where they're aligned with what we're trying to achieve within SAP. So we've, on the online partner marketing catalog that our partners are able to spend their money, we have implemented a number of social enterprises into that catalog. So our partners can use these social enterprises as well as SAP. Brilliant. No, sounds excellent. Thank you, Kelvin. So Jamie, uh,
0: thank you for joining us today. Um, before we hear a bit more about your story uh, and the inspiration behind Social Supermarket, where do you think this pledge stacks up against what, what else is going on in the market? So from an outside SAP perspective, we talk a lot about this. Um, obviously, it's, it's a major initiative for us across the business. But from your side, how do you think it stacks up against what other organisations are
2: doing? Yeah, thank you. And thanks very much for the invitation to be here. Um, delighted to be chatting about um, social enterprise um, with ASAP. Um, so, firstly, um, my, my background before uh, going full time on social supermarket was with EY, um, based in the UK. I was head of social enterprise services. And what's been fantastic to see is this growing trend of companies committing addressable spend with social enterprises. Um, particularly with EY, a lot of my relationship there was working with both the UK and also global procurement team to address both sustainability and diversity in their supply chain. Um, and I think what's particularly um, impressive about the SAP commitment is a, a hard number um, for them individually as a particular spend. We've seen uh, a kind of uh, conglomerate of organisations make, make a group commitment. Which is fantastic to see. But I think particularly companies taking that that particular ownership over their own spend is, is really fantastic to see. Um so I, I think as, as I mentioned, I think there are now 24 companies as part of a bi social movement. Um that's been growing steadily over the last few years. So I think to see SAP as one of the first taking the lead in this is 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 brilliant.
1: And when I look at what we are doing compared to other companies, and Jamie mentioned um the other corporate partners in uh, the Buy Corporate Social Challenge. The only one that I've heard that's actually made a firm commitment was um, Amy Construction, and they've committed to 5% of their addressable spend by 2023. So they're two years ahead of SAP, but then again, Amy Construction joined the Social Enterprise UK Corporate Challenge a couple of years before SAP did. So that's just a bit more background on the numbers, uh, Adam. Brilliant. Thank you, Kelvin.
0: So, Jamie, did you want to just um, tell us a bit more about your story? So what was the inspiration behind Social Supermarket? You mentioned they used to work with that EY. Like, what kind of influence did that have over your, your um, decisions there?
2: Yeah, no, of course. So, um, so my background's always been in responsible business. Um, I, I've worked at various different organisations from both charities to corporates. But always been very passionate about the power for business to have a positive impact on society and the environment, and the ability to really scale up the impact um, that they're addressing through commercial solutions. Um, And I think the inspiration behind Social Supermarket was really frustration with um, the fact that there was a growing demand of people who wanted to find products that had a positive social purpose. And most fit into various different categories. You know, we've seen the rise of people buying, for instance, reusable uh, water bottles after seeing David Attenborough's documentary. We've seen people frustrated with the use of palm oil. So I think there's a growing consumer demand for products that have a social purpose. And actually, my old uh, old company did a research piece on this about a year ago that showed that 62% of people would buy from um, would, would rather spend money and would pay a premium for a product that had a social purpose. And at the same time, as Kelvin mentioned, there are these 100,000 social enterprises out there in the UK, and it's a huge market, a 60 billion pound market. But what, what I was frustrated by was um, essentially this gap between the, the market and the demand. So how do you make it as easy as possible to find and buy from these amazing products that have a brilliant story and a social purpose and actually also often competitively priced? So me, along with two, uh, two university friends, set up a social supermarket. Uh, we built the initial website in about six weeks in the lead up to Christmas. Um, to, you know, on the side of day jobs, um, we basically approached a number of social enterprises, said, this is our vision. This is what we'd like to do. Uh, We started with about 10 brands, maybe about 100 products. And then since then, we've really just been building out the site. And we've now got uh, about 80 brands and close to 1,000 products. Um, So we're now the most comprehensive site in the UK, the most comprehensive marketplace in the UK for social enterprise products. And our ambition is really to take that to scale and be the first place that anyone looks to find and buy from from purpose-driven brands.
0: Fantastic. And I, I can certainly vouch for the products because I've had one of your uh, parcels delivered at home and, and some of the, I mean, some of the products are fantastic. And uh, it, like you say, it's always, it feels much more empowering when you're able to divert money you're already going to spend anyway, but towards an organisation that you know that money is going somewhere um, that's doing good. Um, but I think it would be remiss of us to talk about social enterprise without talking a bit about COVID. Um And some of the challenges that the pandemic has had across all businesses, but none more so than startups and and, and these kinds of organizations. So tell us a bit about what kind of challenges you faced um, over
2: the last few months. Yeah, so I I mean, I can give a bit of insight as well to to some of our suppliers. (coughs) Um, You know, we have a lot of brands who we work with who uh, mainly service the hospitality industry. Now, a lot of their um, a lot of their um sales have kind of fallen off a cliff because you know bars and restaurants, especially during lockdown, were really struggled. Um and you know, that's been a huge challenge to the sector. Um, but I also want to focus, I guess, also on the positives um, that some of the stories that we've seen as well in terms of pivots, but also in terms of growth in marketplace. So we had, for instance, one jewelry brand, and uh, jewelry's not done particularly well during lockdown. Um, as as is fashion hasn't performed particularly well, but this one jewelry brand decided to create a bookmark which had soon on it and a bit of a kind of novelty item that people could send to people as presents and that represented eighty five percent of their sales in the two months during April and May. And then we had another brand, um, Toast ale, um, who I'm sure you might have come across as well, who make delicious award winning beer made from surplus bread. And I think something like 80% of their sales um, were through bars and restaurants. And they basically repivoted their business model to focus online. um, And I think increased their sales online by about 38%. So I think just, you know, there's, there's been a huge impact on social enterprises during this period. But I guess the point I wanted to raise there was that these are incredibly resilient organizations. And actually, if we compare the figures to know how the ethical marketplace performed during the last recession in 2008 they actually outperformed standard smes yeah and they actually increased their revenue by 18 percent compared to standard smes so i think i've got a lot of kind of hope for where the future of a social enterprise marketplace will come coming out of covid um, and particularly resilient
0: yeah and jamie you talked there about some of the the opportunities that you've seen in the market what specific
2: opportunities do you see for your business uh, during this time um our model um has uh, quite quite centered around gift boxes during covid and we've kind of repivoted our own business model to focus particularly on that offer so we have two kind of offers we've got the ebay or amazon of the ethical ebay or amazon uh, model where you can buy from individual products um, on the site but then we also put together gift boxes and hampers made out of social in- enterprise food and drink items and that's been particularly that resonated particularly strongly as well with companies sending out to employees um, as a basically a bit of a thank you for the lead up to throughout um, the year obviously for a difficult period and also for individuals sending it to friends and family and loved ones And then what we've also been thinking about um, and being very um, trying to be a tangible measure to what the impact looks like. So for instance, we've had companies who sent to, you know, their entire UK workforce. So a thousand gift boxes made up of food and drink items that have a social impact. So one for instance, might be change please coffee and they provide employment for homeless people. So we can say to that company that order produced 60 hours of employment for someone who was otherwise homeless. Or it includes rubies and the rubble, an award-winning chutney made out of wonky fruit and veg. So that particular order saved four kilos of wonky fruit and veg from going to waste. And I think it's that ability to kind of quantify what the impact looks like that is really support, really, really effective for both companies and individuals. And I think particularly moving into next year, we want to find even better ways to integrate that into our platform and also the way that we report on the impact from those sales.
0: Great. Um, and aside from COVID, so what other challenges um, do you see social enterprises facing? And and what do you think needs to be done to help them, Jamie?
2: Yeah, so I mean, it's um, the, the social enterprise sector, I think, is is thriving and growing. Um, but I, I'm pretty ambitious for the sector. And I, I really think that there's an opportunity coming out of COVID to change the way that people think about purchasing. You know, we've got a bit of a saying, which is, you know, every purchase is a chance for change. And, and one of our other brands called Toast Ale have got a great, another great motto which says, you know, if you want to change the world, you've got to throw a better party. You know, you've got to offer a better product and you've got to deliver a better experience. And that's, that's ultimately we, what we believe. There are some practical elements as well. So one of the challenges is also access to investment. We were very fortunate to raise some angel investment back in June Um, I had a very surreal experience, which was um, an individual who had just left their business, um, had a successful exit, uh, reached out to me via LinkedIn, having been in a social enterprise space, and asked basically if we could have a chat. Uh, Two months later, after not even meeting, we managed to secure some angel investment, which which gave us basically the injection um, of time and energy uh, and the ability to hire someone specifically focused on marketing. But I think in general, there's a, there's a real opportunity um, for the investment sector to kind of provide that boost of energy. So I'd say, you know, there's two elements. There's, there's the element of kind of investment and patient capital um, in the sector. And then the other thing is, I think people understanding that social enterprise products really offer a better product and service to the market and being very clear on that. Absolutely. Um, From your
0: side, Kelvin, what what do you see as the kind of key challenges, particularly as working for a large corporate, procuring through social enterprises? How do you see us addressing some of these challenges?
1: Yeah, before I answer that question, I just would like to go back to something that Jamie mentioned about impact earlier on. Um, To me, this is what procurement with purpose is all about. This is what we are ultimately looking at. It's not how much dollars we spend, but what is that dollar actually going to give us at the end of it so we work in at gpo's working with the csr team at the moment to put a dashboard together and that will include many of the items that jamie's mentioned so you know how many lives have we actually um changed by the money we've spent with them you know um how many you know volunteer hours have we uh, provided to that particular supplier because there are uh, opportunities for us to do that particularly with the month of service in normal circumstances. Also the number of people that these companies are bringing on board, sorry not the number of companies but the number of employees that they're bringing on board from disadvantaged areas. Um, So we are working on that at the moment and we're hoping to produce a report that provides that impact rather than just a number. But going back to your question about um, you know, the, 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 the challenges that social enterprises face. The main one that I see is, you know, being recognized by companies such as SAP and the decision makers in there that these are legitimate companies. But there is a myth out there that these companies are charities and um, that stops them getting in front of those decision makers. I think we can do, uh, along with the corporate partners uh, of Social Enterprise UK, and companies such as Jamie's I think we can blow away that myth you know by recognizing that these are legitimate companies that they have got a good purpose and you know we should be uh, promoting them
0: question from my side so you you touched a little bit on this Kelvin Um, what do you see as key to helping social enterprises scale um, particularly right now
1: I think I've touched on the three areas that I see as being uh, the way we can um, get social enterprises uh, into corporations at scale. I think, one, from, from my side, the majority of our spend is with strategic spl- suppliers in SAP you know, our tier one companies, whether it be, you know, the compasses of this world who provide our catering or whether our marketing agencies, the majority of our spend is with our tier one suppliers. Uh, We do have some direct engagements, but the majority I would say was with tier ones. So for us, it's to engage with them, to bring them on board, um, to explain what we are trying to achieve and getting them to take on board these social enterprises into their business and we are doing that we've seen it with compass we've seen it with iss we've seen it with bw on the scalpel so it is possible and certainly one of our uh, marketing agencies they're using a social enterprise company as well secondly I, I think we've got to use our influence in our ecosystem and this is you know, going back to what Adair was saying in the five by five pledge, you know, looking at how we can get our, our ecosystem to engage with them. I already mentioned about, you know, including social enterprises on the, the partner network so that partners can buy from them. Um, the third one is, and it was touched upon just a moment ago, is we've got to make these suppliers more visible in Ariba. So for me, those are the three areas. I'm not too sure what Jamie thinks, but uh, Jamie's got other experiences. Maybe Jamie could add to it.
2: Yeah, thank you, Kelvin. Um, so I guess just drawing on my experience both from you know being a social entrepreneur, but also working inside EBY and, and and completely appreciate um you know cutting through internal comms can be can be a real challenge. So I think visibility is is certainly key. Um, you know one of one of the pieces for me as well is how do we make it as easy as possible for you guys (laughs) and social enterprises so you know we're always keen to get as much feedback around either around the kind of um the experience that 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 you have or products that you're looking for but you might not be able to find Um, we work with very kind of grassroots organizations early stage entrepreneurs Um, so if there's a product um and and i was chatting to someone the other day and they used the example of um, biscuits in conference rooms. But if there's a product that you think would fit really well, then we can always feedback back. So that's another thing. Um, and then, you know, we, we're continuing to build our own platform to to help make it as easy as pof- possible to navigate uh, navigate through. Um, so again, I guess that, that kind of reiterates my first point around just making it as easy as possible for you guys to find and buy from these products. Jamie, from your side, what's the call to action?
0: What If there's one thing that we can all take away from this session afterwards? Like what, what would that
2: be for you? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're really passionate about the impact that the brands that we have, but have both on the recipients, but also the people giving them. So we, you know, we work at the moment predominantly in the gifting space, but particularly in the lead up to Christmas, I think I'd really encourage everyone online to think about alternatives. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's when people spend the most amount of money being frank and thinking about how you can spend your money through more sustainable alternatives, um, through smaller organisations, through UK-based organisations—you know, it could be through Social Supermarket, but there are thousands of social enterprises out there. So, you know, we we feature over eighty brands, and you can find more about us at socialsupermarket.org. But then you can also find out a huge plethora of different other social enterprise brands by searching by social on the Social Enterprise UK. So, I think. I'd encourage you, especially in the lead up to the festive season, to really explore the social enterprise market when you're thinking about presents for friends and families or even gifts for, um, you know, colleagues as well. Great.
0: Kelvin, Jamie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's fascinating to explore this topic in more detail and it's something that's going to evolve so much, certainly over the next few months. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining us and uh, hope to see you in person very soon.
1: Thank you very much, Adam.
0: Nice speaking to, speak to you, Jamie. Thank, Thank you.
1: Me.
0: I'm now joined by Cecilia Crossley, who is the founding director of social enterprise from Babies With Love. So thanks for joining us on the show, Cecilia. Could you start by just telling us about your background and what was your inspiration behind From Babies With Love?
3: Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me today. Um, my story and um, the inspiration for From Babies With Love Um, I must admit begins with my childhood. Um, My mum is from Brazil and my dad is English and my um, childhood summer holidays were often going to visit my gran in Rio. And um, so when I was a child myself, I used to see children living on the streets in Brazil. So reflecting back on that, um, I realised, you know, I grew up with an awareness of gross inequality. Um, was a bit unusual for a child growing up in England and it's informed who it's informed my career path and who I've become. Um, I only realized that as an adult you know but um, I studied economics um, and that was a very traditional free market 101 kind of economics at a British university Um, but my dad who's a political history lecturer schooled me in other models of how we organize our society um, fairly. And so he planted seeds in my mind as well. And I began my career in a, you know, as a, I'm a chartered accountant by profession and I did my training in the city in financial services, but I did lots of, I chose to do lots of pro bono projects for the, um, with, with local charities in London for the CSR team um, at one of it was a big four firm and um, I realized that that's the bit that I loved and so I moved um, into charity finance roles in international development and I worked all over the world and learned more about global issues and what work is going on to address them and through that work experience I learned about the concept of social enterprise which I absolutely love. I think the opportunity is significant and I just felt really inspired to get involved. Um, and uh, in a very uh, cliched way on a very traditional maternity leave, I had the idea for From Babies With Love. I was um, out pounding the streets, trying to get my baby asleep in a pushchair on one of those walks. Um, I popped into a little children's shop and um, I picked up a, I don't know, a little baby t-shirt or something and I had the thought, you know, what if I could buy a product like this and at the same time help a vulnerable child? What I realised was how poignantly that would speak to the emotions that you experience in becoming a parent, you know, that I think everybody cares about welfare, the welfare of children. I think that's in our DNA as humans, but um, in becoming a parent, that goes to a really kind of deeper place and you know you can't watch um, one of the children's TV adverts um, on TV anymore I mean most people find those adverts difficult anyway but that becomes you know you can't help but be profoundly moved Um, and I assumed it would be possible to buy products like that and I went home to find them to think yeah that's what I'll get when my friends have babies I'll buy such products and I found it wasn't possible Um, I found that there are lots of products that what, you know, exist from what I would call traditional charity retail, uh, which I also love secondhand products um, that you can buy in charity shops, which brilliant. Um, And also kind of products that you can get on charity websites. Traditionally, like you can buy, you know, a caftan from Africa, or you can buy a card that is in effect a goat for, you know, Uncle John at Christmas, those kind of products. And I love all of that. But the question that I keep asking is, what about everything else that I want to buy? You know, there are some things I'll buy in a charity shop, but I'm not gonna spend all my disposable income in the charity shop. Um, and there's only, you know, Uncle John's had enough goats now, <laughs> but I want every pound that I spend to create positive social change. And from Babies of Love is one example, and I created one way um, that we can do that. So you buy beautiful baby products for your own little one, for your friends or colleagues when they have babies, and at the same time, you enjoy knowing you're helping a vulnerable child, and that is how From Babies of Love began.
0: That's fantastic, and it, it certainly makes my background feel very insignificant and boring <laughs> compared yeah. to yours. But um, I can totally relate to that. Obviously, uh, having two children of my own, we've got another one on the okay. way as well. So oh, um, awesome. it, I'll yeah. definitely be um, checking out some of the the sort of newborn products you have because like you say it's it's something we can all relate to um and we all want to feel like we're, we're giving back and and it's all money that we would be spending anyway so why wouldn't yeah. we uh, divert that to a social enterprise and a good cause so um yeah that was fantastic in terms of the inspiration behind it so why don't you tell us a bit more about the where does that money go so you mentioned about supporting children out, around the world but what does that look like in terms of some of the causes that you've been able to support
3: Yeah, so we are not experts in the care of vulnerable children, and we have no infrastructure to actually provide the care. Um, But that is intentional, uh, because there are many brilliant organisations out there um, leading in best practice to break children out of poverty. So our role is to innovate new products and services that create a new source of income to fund that work, which is, you know, globally an an underfunded issue. Um, so what the way that we provide the care to the children is by partnering with global charities who have that infrastructure and are the experts. They work in accordance with best practice as issued by bodies such as the UN, um, UNICEF being the UN's Arm for vulnerable um, children, um, and also the UN Sustainable Development Goals guidance as well. Um, and so we select charitable partners um, using those, those kinds of guidance tools. And then we say to them, you know, you're the experts, you tell us. We want to help the children in the world's toughest places. Um, where are they? What needs funding? What work needs doing? Um, and those charities then. Um, Uh, uh, guide us and they give us suggestions um, and our board makes decisions using a uh, a framework that we've created um, to allocate the profit that we make um, which is about to hit over £200,000 that will have gone to the children which is a a nice milestone to hit Um, and, um, and that's how it happens. The nature of the work um, that we fund varies according to the context that the children are in. So in, co- in some cases, that's quite extreme scenarios, for example, in conflict zones where we're caring for refugee children. For example, we care for um, well we help educate South Sudanese refugee children in northern Uganda or um, in Nigeria, uh, the children are in internally displaced persons camps. They're in their own country. They're not refugees, um, but their villages have been um, leveled due to the conflict with Boko Haram, I mean civil war basically. Um, and so there, because the children have experienced some extreme trauma, our work is it's really holistic. It's education, absolutely, we don't want the children to be illiterate. Um, so we're funding teachers to, you know, for the basics of reading and writing. Um, but you, there's no point teaching a child if that child is hungry and hasn't got food or is psychologically, you know, is is, is mentally unwell. Has no sense of security and stability. Is not receiving any love or the um, the emotional well being that a family structure provides. So in those kind of scenarios, we're funding social workers to try and reunite and accompany children with biological family. Uh, if that's not possible, to find a new family for them to be um, adopted by, and child psychologists as well. So it you know uh, the SDGs you know the seventeen of them, and they all interlink. And that's particularly true um, in the in how, how a child is brought up, um, particularly a vulnerable child, that you want to go on and lead um, an independent and happy life and break out of the cycle of poverty. So um so the you know, the work is tailored according to the children's needs, and, and those are just a couple of examples that I could talk forever about the children. So <laughs> I think I'd better stop there. I hope that gives a good um a good insight into the nature of the change that. Our customers are creating?
0: Well it's great to hear you talk with so much passion because it's clearly something that you feel um, deeply um, passionate about Um, and it's really good to hear you talk about the the SDGs as well because um, us at SAP we align all of our CSR Initiatives um, with those uh, development goals as well. So it's really good to see how you've made such an impact across so many of those areas already. Um, and on yeah. on that note, um, you've also partnered with SAP in the UK, haven't you? So tell us a bit more yeah. about how you're working with us.
3: Yes. Yeah, so um, we began our partnership with SAP in Germany, um, and um, now um, more SAP countries around the world are joining, including the UK. So that's brilliant um and the service we provide is for your hr colleagues um your hr directors and your hr directors your hr leaders are all working on a strategic priority to um retain colleagues when they are working parents so either becoming a parent or you know growing your family like you are um and um there are there are two drivers that SAP has for that priority. One is, you know, losing somebody like you, if you felt that you couldn't continue your thriving career and be a working dad. Um, That's really expensive for SAP because you're a really valued member of staff. Um, You're highly trained, you run a team. Um, So the cost of replacing you uh, is a significant financial cost. So so somebody like SAP doesn't want to lose you, uh, even if we go as crudely as just, you know, what the pound sign (laughs) looks like. Um, The other driver is um, your HR leaders are working to ensure you have gender balance as part of your diversity and inclusion work. um, and, And, you know, at all levels of your teams and certainly at your most senior levels of your executive. And. Um, retaining working parents is a really important driver of achieving gender balance. Historically, attrition of working parents meant um, attrition of working mothers leading to gender imbalance um, as a, you know, the more senior you get. So there are significant programs at companies like SAP and also many um, around the world to um, develop strategies and implement programs that support parents so that they can carry on. Um, delivering you know excellent work and building their careers. and we form part of that strategy. Um, one small part of it may I add there are lots of other wonderful initiatives going on, but uh, and altogether they result in making working parents feel valued, feel connected, feel appreciated, and feel that they can continue their career. And the way that we do it, is that we transform the spend that kind of was happening anyway, lost on lots of credit cards um, at, you know, uh, the flower company or the high street company, or even some people were just missed out. Not, not unintended, but just the line manager happened to be busy in and that spend was taking place on a gift, gift from SAP that says, you. I'm interested to know if you've had if you had one before our partnership launch, just to say welcome and congratulate you on your new baby. And what we've done is we've transformed that spend and we've turned it into um, an element of your strategy for your working parents that is strategically thought through, that is consistent for all all parental leavers, mat leave, pat leave, adoption leave, fostering, it includes everybody. And importantly, the value, the key to the value that we add is the gift that goes to colleagues, quintessential items, you know, the baby grow, the blankets. Um, It comes with the story of how SAP's gift for you is also helping a less um, fortunate child. And as we discussed at the beginning, that story is is what touches your heart. It makes a gift from SAP so meaningful and so memorable. And it really, it's it's the design of it, it says to you, we care about you. And it also communicates that people messaging about how working parents are valued and included within all team structures and um, culture at SAP. And it communicates how um, SAP also um, appreciates and values the global community that SAP serves. Um, And that is what we do for you.
0: I mean, it's such a powerful story. Um, And we at SAP, we do talk a lot about what is our greater purpose. And you've probably heard this yourself. So our vision is it's all about helping the world run better and improve people's lives. And it doesn't get any clearer than that in terms of how we've aligned with you. And I know that Adair Fox-Martin talks really um, passionately about the relationship we have with you and and how From Babies Within Love really aligns with what we're trying to do as an organisation um, yeah. and like you say it's making people feel um, empowered it's making people feel a lot more um, sort of passionate about the the organization they're working for because we know that we are making a change and we are partnering with these with organizations like yourself that are doing such amazing things um, so yeah thank you for that I mean that's fantastic um, and yeah. looking back um, we, we started talking about about um, before uh, we started the podcast about the awareness of social enterprises in general like I still feel that there is a lack of awareness of what it is that social enterprises do. Um, We talked a bit about, look, they're not just normal charities. They're they're so different from that. Why do you think there is that lack of awareness and and what do you think we can do about it?
3: Well, in my own experience um, in raising awareness from babies of love, we are forever constrained by marketing budgets. And the, the, the challenge I, I say to myself is, um, you know, why don't we just raise investment and spend it all on a campaign? Uh, that's what a traditional business would do on a launch. Um, and we are, we have a restriction intentionally in our model that prevents us from doing that in a big mega spend kind of splash way, which is that um we must make a profit. We've always made a profit. We're not a startup that's made a loss. And that's because our brand promise is that all our profit goes to orphan and abandoned children. So we can't make a loss. And so it's it's meant that we haven't been able to have um a huge public awareness campaign that in year one and two and three perhaps like a normal startup means we're loss making. Um, and then um, You know, then you break even, then you make a profit. Um, So we've had to spend uh, in marketing in a way that um, creates incremental growth. That's an interesting quandary that I I still think about a lot and I don't necessarily have the perfect answer to. But I I just think that's one way that we are different to, you know, our startup journey has been different to um, traditional business startup journeys. In that way, in that we, you know, we've never been loss making, um, and that as a result, we haven't had millions of pounds spent on on marketing. So that's an interesting quandary, I think. Um, I think there's opportunity for um corporate businesses that buy from social enterprises to harness that you know that kind of multi-million budget marketing spend that they have to um to forward that agenda in a really smart way, because um, the, you know you you already mentioned about sap's purpose um so the opportunity for sap to talk about how it aligns its business to the sdgs in a way that attracts and retains its own clients um, could um be done in a way that um intrinsically in the communications promotes social enterprise. And I see that already happening. I mean, you guys are already doing that. So you know, I think that is an interesting circle to that square that I just described that I've been wondering about all these years. So that's really exciting and my thanks to you and NSAP and Adair, of course, for leading so brilliantly in this way. Um, and I also think that in that kind of communications is a wonderful opportunity to ensure that the language of social enterprise is is truly progressive. You know, social enterprises are about harnessing the power of commerce to create social change. Um, The power of business, the power of procurement spend, the size of procurement spend um, is is just phenomenal in comparison to what we think of as traditional CSR. I once saw a beautiful diagram, uh, if I can just describe the visual of, um, you know, when you see like in science class, the the, the map of of the solar system and the planets all lined up yeah. and um, the, the CSR spend of the, I don't know, it's like the FTSE 100 or the Fortune 500 or you know, just one of those, um, the, the cumulative spend of, of the CSR budgets of those businesses is like, this is the tiny planet and now I don't even know which it is, Mercury or something. Whereas the um, cumulative procurement spend of those businesses is like Jupiter. And I, I, that visual just sticks in my mind. And so if you think of, if you turn that amount of spend, the jupiter amount of spend, into spend that solves social problems and that contributes to the SDGs, imagine how much faster social change will create. And I think that if the, the benefit of, of doing that for businesses is that it delivers commercial benefit. You know, I described to you what From Babies With Love does to help SAP solve a problem, the problem of attrition of working parents, the problem of connecting. So, you know, SAP is choosing to buy from from Babies of Love because we help solve a commercial problem and we contribute to a goal um, in in one of your functions. Um, On top of that, we make everybody feel good, but that's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is commercially driven. Um, And so I think in communications, um, the language of, you're harnessing the, the, the spend that you're gonna spend anyway to get something you need to or solve a problem that you have anyway. Um, and you're gonna do it in a way that makes you feel really proud of yourself and that you feel empowered for the pounds you've, you're spending, pounds in your pockets. That is a very, to me as an individual, you know, I buy stuff, stuff myself. That excites me as, as to, you know, that motivates me and incentivizes me to make choices to buy from social enterprises
0: absolutely and, and you talked there about the potential um and certainly with what we're doing with our partnership with so- social enterprise uk um we have this ariba network which is where all these billions and billions of pounds of transactions are made every day from a procurement perspective and we calculated look just one percent of that going towards a social enterprise that can inject like 23 billion pounds into the sector so that's just moving one percent of spend that's already happening day in day out for businesses that's the kind of impact it can have towards the sector so that's where i think it's really important for us to talk about the potential um Mm -hmm. and it's not insignificant if we can just move just a a few businesses just to start to think differently about where they're going for their suppliers and and the services that they need um every day so that's a really important point um, and yeah. just we, we talked a bit about um obviously it's a very tough time for businesses right now in the current climate as we speak now we're still in the middle of of the pandemic um, and p- particularly startups are struggling right because it, it's just a tough time to attract the business and um the consumers that you usually would um outside mm-hmm. of this so why don't you tell us a bit about some of the challenges that you faced as a business during this pandemic
3: so there's two elements to share the first is um the products and services that we provide to our customers and i must say that i feel very grateful that relatively speaking we have been so far um, fairly insulated from uh, the impact of the pandemic, in that all of our products and services are delivered to our customers without face-to-face contact. So um, that um, has just been good luck, I think, in all honesty. Um, We do have clients in some sectors that have been um, extremely adversely affected, for example, in the travel sector. And so one of the business impacts for us is that some of our clients might not survive, um, or if they do, they will make significant redundancies and shrink the size of their workforce. So for us, that means, of course, um, a smaller workforce is fewer working parents and therefore the uh, amount of our service we're providing to them shrinks. So, you know, my heart goes out to, to our clients who are in those types of sectors Um, we do serve clients in a very diverse um, range of sectors so again you know and that diversity affords us some insulation from the business side of things and um, our revenues being secure so yeah I do I do think in a way that you know whether or not your business is affected um, you know disastrously by the pandemic is almost it feels like it's potluck you know which sectors of Just taken such a hit, and which haven't, but um, so that's not so bad. Um, on uh, the other element is where the children are. Um, so a lot of our work is supporting children's education, and around the world, schools um, and learning centres have closed just like they have here in the UK. And um, the children we support are extremely vulnerable children, so that their, their teachers and their learning institutions actually form a significant social care um, provision for them in in fact we've heard about it in the headlines in the UK as well like things like children going hungry because they didn't get their school dinner their free school dinner yeah uh, Marcus
0: Rashford's uh, campaign isn't he so yeah really helped um, get it onto the um the government agenda and, it, and yeah
3: that's right yeah and the risk of domestic violence um because people are a lot of times so so those things happening in the uk right so now imagine the same scenario in some of the world's toughest places and the risk to children becomes you know it's the risk of forced marriage it's the risk of um child trafficking it's the risk of domestic violence gender-based violence for girls um yeah, so, so it's like, imagine transferring those risks in, into some extremely vulnerable um, situations. Um, and that's the impact of schools closing. So that's just one example of how the pandemic is impacting the children that we support. Brilliantly, because the, 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 sorry, because the charities we partner with are experts, they um, have pivoted their programs and the delivery of their work to deal with these situations. And actually, in some cases, you know, they've actually had experience of doing it before. If you imagine the Ebola pandemic in West Africa, that left many children orphaned, that left many children without um, you know, family upbringing and education and, and just proper care. So um, the charities know what they're doing and have been able to respond extremely um, quickly, almost in a way faster than like we have in the UK because we haven't had to deal with it in this way before, you know? So the biggest impact for us has been on the delivery of the care of the children. Um, But, uh, but like I say that, you know, our charities report to us the work that's going on and they've, they've just done a phenomenal job. Yeah.
0: Great. And, uh, and hopefully, well, on this podcast, we've got Kelvin uh, talking a bit more about the the pledge that SAP has made where we've committed 5% of our addressable spend towards social enterprises by 2025 so we hope that by making that kind of commitment that we're helping as well in, in some small way um, to ensure that we are as corporates that we're diverting more of our addressable spend towards social enterprises and hopefully yeah giving these organizations the platform and, and the awareness um, that they typically wouldn't have so um, hopefully, we'll we'll see in in the next few years how that's that's made impact in itself. So, I mean, Cecilia, I could sit here and talk to you all day because it's 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 all sort of really inspiring and, and really thank passionate and um, stuff. Thank so, you. thank you for your time. I think just to end the, the conversation, like, what do you want the key takeaway to be? So, anyone who's listening to this this podcast today, what do you feel that we can all gain from choosing to buy from a social enterprise?
3: I think you can feel wonderful. My, my, my ask for anybody listening today is um, no matter what you're buying in your personal life, uh, in your work budget, um, see if you can take a moment, challenge yourself, perhaps just one item that you would normally just default buy from that brand that you have bought from for however long. Um, and just take a moment to say, hang on a minute, is there a way I can buy a product that has uh, the exact same quality that I want? that It's the same price that I want. Uh, but that also creates social change um, it might be from a social enterprise it might be a fair trade certified product it might be from a charity um, just research and see if that's out there and see if you can switch that one item um, and see if it makes you feel as amazing as i think it will
0: <laughs> well it doesn't get better than that and I've, I've already got your website up and i'll be uh yeah looking forward to hopefully receiving something in the post in in the next six months um, but no thank you Cecilia. Yeah,
3: congratulations
0: that, oh thank you very much Thank you for your time. Uh, this has been yeah, really insightful and I've learned loads just from the last 20 minutes. So thank you for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll meet you uh, in person very soon. I hope
3: so. Thank you so much, Adam. Lovely to speak to you.
0: So I'm now joined by Jamal Ezel, who is the founder of Social Enterprise Change Please. So Jamal, you're a very busy man, Uh, so thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. It's my absolute pleasure, Adam, and thank you for inviting me on. So firstly, uh, can you tell us a bit about your personal story and the inspiration behind Change, Please? Um, I particularly love the way you talk about the rucking chair test and how that helped you with your your sort of mindset.
4: Yeah, so I set up Change, Please five years ago um, purely to try and... Uh, make a difference to the world that we live in and and feel like I'm contributing something back. I used to work in the city as a commodity trader and started to feel a little unfulfilled. Um, I wouldn't say I had a midlife crisis, but I had a a third of my life crisis at at the age of 29. Um, And um, my partner took a gap year, traveling around Asia and and different countries. And I um, joined her in Vietnam and in Vietnam, um, we were on this kind of 18-hour bus journey going up from Ho Chi Minh City up through the centre of Vietnam. And it was two o'clock in the morning, a quarter of the way through the journey. Um, there was about two seats left on the um, on the bus and this American traveller sat next to me on the bus. And he just got, we just got chatting. He, uh, uh, he I, I told him I wasn't too happy with my job and, and what I was doing. And, and, um, and he said, look, if you're not happy with your job and your life, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life, thinking, what have you achieved? What's your legacy in the world? Have you left the the world in a better place and who's going to remember you? And I remember just sitting there at kind of two o'clock in the morning when everyone else was asleep uh, thinking, you know, blimey, if this bus crashed now, then the only people that would really genuinely care would be my parents, maybe perhaps some immediate friends, my bank manager and, and my insurance broker because he need he would need to fill in some forms you know the, the, the day afterwards so that was a pretty lonely and sad feeling you know to feel that everything that I'd been doing up to that point was just focused on me and building assets building wealth um and you know securing my own future and you know that there, there'd be no benefit to the world that we lived in you know no one would necessarily remember me it'd just be um I've not left anything back to the world I'm not left in a better place it's just your existence was just, you know, negative or just neutral is, is, um, was the feeling I had. And a couple of weeks later, we were still in Vietnam in a place called, we went to a place called Hoi An, which is an old Japanese colonial town. And there there was these, uh, there's this beautiful kind of silent tea house, which was a tea house that was set up by deaf and mute ladies who came together. They didn't have any other opportunities in their village and they created this beautiful tea house that was a, a Japanese themed, um, had a Japanese garden in, in the middle of it. It was full of tourists, American, German. Um, and uh, and I just remember thinking at the age of 29, wow, you can do good and business at the same time. It didn't need to be this full on charge of just making money, uh, which is what I was used to. And it kind of sounds a little bit alien now, but five or six years ago, actually seven years ago, um, that wasn't really anything that came into my mind. It was either business or charity. Um, and char- there wasn't that kind of combination of, of uh, both where you get the social enterprise concept. Um, and yeah, I had the idea of setting up Change peas in, so, uh, in, uh, in London. I came back to, um, so I had the idea of setting up Change peas in Vietnam. I came back to London. And when I arrived in Paddington, I saw a homeless person holding up a sign at Paddington Station uh, with just a word saying, change please. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I went to a Banksy exhibition where Banksy's got this really beautiful bit of street art with a homeless person on the streets um, saying, keep your coins, I want change, with their hand out. And underneath their hand was a coffee cup. And I remember that. I, I, I like a good pun, and remember that the, the the word "change fees" from the person at Paddington, and I said, "Right, that's that's a big enough sign for me to uh to give up my job and and then I I went to the School of Social Entrepreneurs and set up Change Fees thereafter, um, and that was kind of my journey. And it was with a view that actually, genuinely, we can have a change in society, a win-win opportunity in society by selling products through supply chains, doing good, having an impact, um, but with no loss to a bottom line, with no loss to quality. Um, And with that in mind, the level of impact that we can have on the world that we live in just seems absolutely exponential and incredibly exciting. And and that's, that's one of the things which has really kept me going, not just the impact that we have on the lives of people that we support on a daily basis at change fees, but also the, the concept of social enterprise and the concept of supply chains and innovation and, and, and change. And I think those win win opportunities for organizations to change their supply chains is evident. And that I think there is no better organization that I've seen than SAP to really drive that through the, the incredible power that they control through their supply chains and through the Ariba platform to kind of support their partners in buying social. I think it's just a completely untapped potential to change the world.
0: I mean that that's hugely inspirational, and I certainly wish I had the same kind of thoughts when I was traveling the world on my gap year. But um, it just really helps us to kind of picture that change in mindset you had um, and to start in this. So thank you so much for that. Um, and from what from myself speaking to a lot of these other social enterprises, it everyone's saying the same thing. It's really the smallest things that we can collectively do that can make that huge impact. Um, across so many different causes so I mean it's great to see that I mean we feel privileged that we're able to support that in some small way. Um, Did you want us to tell us a bit more about some of the work you've specifically been doing in the UK to support the homeless and and the impact that you've made since since starting up?
4: Absolutely so a change please we looked at how homelessness is tackled globally by every major government and nearly every major government tries to wait for either um, some sort of philanthropic intervention or to build housing Um, and it's just very slow. Housing is always secondary, affordable housing is always secondary to uh, high margin housing Uh, and that's understandable in a capitalist society, no one's begrudging anybody of that but that's why the homelessness problem gets worse and worse and from our perspective we focus on a job first model, not a housing first model. because we believe that 44% of the people who are homeless and rough sleeping want to work and they can work. Uh, another kind of 15, 20% of the people want to work, but are not actually ready. And the rest of the people don't want to work and are not ready. So, so, you know, with that in mind, and there's 470,000 people who are homeless in the UK, we feel that by tapping into the 44% of the people that want to work and not forcing them to rely on housing, we can provide a sustainable alternative to the current um, Status quo of reducing homelessness, and what we do is we find people that are homeless and off sleeping, and we train them to be baristas. We pay them a living wage, and in London that's twenty-three and a half thousand pounds. We provide um, a bank account, so we provide housing, um, which uh, in ten days, and we're the only organisation in Europe that offers both a living wage job and housing to people that are homeless. Um, we offer a bank account, a therapy support, which is probably the most important area of what we offer. Now you can give somebody a job and a house but if you're not tackling that root cause of why they became homeless then it's just a kind of a combined you know negative spiral after about three months and that therapy allows the person to kind of confront challenges around you know, why they became homeless whether they were a victim of abuse a victim of domestic abuse an ex-offender a military veteran uh, someone with mental health issues like ocd which means they're kind of trapped at home you know a whole range or they've gone for a bereavement a divorce Homelessness is one of those um, challenges in society that is so far reaching and spread. But what tends to happen is people are labelled into one box and it tends to be the image of that rough sleeper being out on the streets, bearded, potentially an alcoholic or a drug user. And that tars the rest of the 470,000 people um, who aren't in that position with the same homelessness brush. And, And actually what we're doing is is kind of changing those stereotypes and stigma and and finding the people that want to work and can work and bringing them back into society through employment. Uh, And it's been incredibly successful. We we have an 82% success rate um, at the end of last year. um, And um, and that's in 2019. And that's really allowed us to kind of springboard into foreign markets. So we're in the UK, in Ireland, uh, France. We've got 19 sites in Paris that we offer training on. Um, in the, uh, Australia, uh, we're just opening in, uh, we opened last year, sorry, in Perth, um, and we're currently looking at, uh, about 12 sites in Germany, um, across five cities from Hanover, Berlin, Munich, Frankfurt, and Cologne. Um, and, uh, this year was meant to be our big rollout in the U.S., but, um, we're in the U.S., we're just focusing on, wi- on women and children who are homeless. And unfortunately in the U.S., the problem is so broad. So, so, so why, right, uh, wide reaching that actually you can just focus on one particular section of homelessness because there's so many people who are homeless um but the model has really been successful and it's worked and the way we've been able to do that is by partnering with companies like sap and selling them coffee where um they were buying coffee already it's now selling them uh what we feel is better quality coffee but but also doing good at the same time
0: it's definitely better quality coffee because I've, I've tried it myself in the office. So I, I can definitely vouch for that. But I mean, that 82% success rate is incredible. Um, and I think a lot of people will be shocked by 470,000 people homeless in the UK. I mean, that is just staggering. So it, it's yeah. great to see, uh, like you say, exploring that the reasons behind that rather than just branding them all in the same box. I think that is, it's so important to do that, to understand their own personal story. Um it's obviously a very tough time for businesses in the current climate. Well, not just businesses, but obviously that that number of homeless people as well. So, how how has COVID impacted your business over the
4: last few months? It's been pretty bad. I mean, it's been pretty bad. So, you you know, you, our business has dropped to 95. percent We supply offices like um, SAP, which have which have um, actually done pretty well and and, and kept going in uh, in comparison to other clients that we supply. Like Virgin Atlantic, we supply coffee onto all of their planes globally or, or lounges globally from Seattle, San Francisco, LA, London. We supply train networks, gyms, um, many white-collar office network or group offices, and, and nothing's really and, – and, and it's not really picked up. So um, our business overall has dropped by 95%, um, and our retail sites, which tend to be in central cities like central London, Manchester, um, that's dropped by, um, by yeah, 85%, uh, 90%. So it's not been good. But we have pivoted quite a lot. We've started supplying into uh, government sites, into universities. And at the beginning of lockdown, we, um, we were kind of really touched by, like everybody was, by the effort of the NHS and care workers and doctors and nurses and under the threat that they were going to be facing f- from coronavirus based on what we saw in Italy, et cetera. And, um, you know, we, 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 we were seeing people clapping every Thursday um, for the NHS. And we said, look, we want to we want to give back a little bit. And we knew we had a lot of empty units of sites that weren't being used, at like coffee vans in Canary Wharf, in um, Liverpool Street that just wasn't being used because there was no traditional um, workers going into those environments. So we contacted the NHS and Nightingale Hospitals and we said, look, we'd like to just donate our time and, and energy and offer you hot coffees black whites, lattes to your staff, to your doctors and nurses, 24 hours a day. So on two rotating shifts. So they will leave at kind of four or five in the morning and they can come and get a hot coffee or we were offering food parcels as well where they can just go home and put it in a microwave. And um, after doing that f- for six different hospitals and serving 160,000 coffees across the country, we were contacted by the head of um, uh, the COO of the NHS who contacted us and said, look, you know, thank you so much for your support and your effort. You might not know this, but there's actually a coffee tender that's currently taking place at the moment. And um, we, you might not win this at all, but, you know, just go for it, have a chance, and you might, it might be great learning experience for when it comes around in three, two or three years' time. Um, and we, we bid for it. There was another kind of 80 to 100 companies that bid for it as well. And we found out about three or four weeks ago that we actually won it um, to supply the NHS with coffee. and.
0: fantastic. Um,
4: fantastic. Yeah, and that just came out of us doing good and giving back and doing something for nothing. Um, But also it just shows the growing demand in um, corporates, but also government uh, buildings and sites wanting to give back and do good through their supply chains as well. And how this, it just proves to me that this decade is going to be the decade of the dawn of social enterprise, really. Um, And, um, you know, five years ago, a company of our size and our um, experience would have had no chance in winning a contract that big with the NHS um, but um, because of the changing demand for social businesses we, we, we won it which was just a huge thing for us so you know coronavirus is taking us back probably two years but winning those types of accounts is allowing us to jump forward two or three years um, so it's, it, it, it just shows you know that there's good and will towards social businesses but if you do something for nothing something will always find its way back to you.
0: That's amazing. And it, it, I mean, it's almost been like an inflection point, hasn't it, this pandemic? And it's, it's where you see these businesses that are, have the ability to kind of re-pivot and quickly adjust its strategy. Um, and like you say, doing good, it, it's a sign there that, being able to step up like that you, you do reap the rewards although obviously that wasn't your first intention your first intention was to help in the same way that you have um by by starting this business in the first place so it's great to see that you, you got the reward uh, for taking that mindset um and in terms of other the other challenges that social enterprises are facing right now we've been talking to Kelvin Ward at SAP who's obviously got the perspective from a from a big corporate side um, in terms of helping give social enterprises more visibility. Um, and that's certainly what our aim has been with SAP. And a couple of weeks ago, we made a big global pledge of 5% of our addressable procurement spend towards social enterprises um, t- in, until 2025. So what do you see as the other kind of key challenges that you're facing and how uh, we can help or how the wider industry can help with those?
4: Yeah, I think... <laughs> the reason why the pledge from SAP is so powerful is because of the relationship SAP has with so many other businesses around the world. And by SAP taking that pledge, it it just creates a... Um, um, hopefully, other organisations wanting to kind of do the same, replicate the same um, level of impact and create the same standards um, for other organisations to copy. Because, you know, if we can get... 5% of those companies around the world copying uh, SAP's 5% pledge, it just may, it will make an absolute difference to the world that we live in. And, and hopefully there will be no change to the bottom line costs, the profit levels to um, the quality of the product. And it just does good for the world. And I've never seen a better win-win scenario than that. So, so really that's, that's just SAP sharing as much as possible that pledge with the businesses that they work with and on the on the Ariba platform um, highlighting as they're doing to some of the uh, SAP partners, um, the social enterprise offers that are available and products that are available. Um, just, giving the, just giving, trying to go to procurement professionals, I think, and before they go into their normal habitual purchase or the same repeat purchase that they might be making anyway, just to um, give people the option to say, look, before you make that purchase, here's a social enterprise alternative. You can say no to it in 10 seconds, but just take 10 seconds to think about it once. And here's the pros and here's the cons and let people decide. And that's all we ask. Um, and uh, hopefully that offer should be so compelling that we start to, to have switch, uh, switch uh, companies switching over. Um, but we've not just had support from SAP from a procurement perspective, but generally from SAP on a wider perspective helping us with our growth you know our impact our um looking at things like our hr our um supply chains and helping us to integrate the sap platform into everything that we do um, on a daily basis that is as useful for us for an organization that's growing internationally as the procurement supply chain element and what what that also helps to do is the people that are supporting us within SAP, I'm sure are also benefiting from support and mentoring and giving something back to a not for profit, making it feel like what they're doing on a daily basis is helping other organisations as well. And that is, from my perspective as a CEO, just as powerful as SAP buying our products.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a nice way to sort of round off in terms of if there's one key takeaway for anyone listening to this podcast today, what do you think that should be? What, What should
4: we take away from this discussion? What coronavirus has, has taught me, and hopefully a lot of other people, is just looking at the status quo and seeing what we can really change. Changing perceptions, changing habits, and, and not being in that kind of fixed mindset and, and just doing the, you know, the sleep, uh, do repeat kind of thing that we all are used to doing. You know? And whether it's um, looking at it from a procurement perspective of buying the same product that you buy every day, whether it's um, just thinking about the social alternative, whether it's whether you're walking past someone on the street who's homeless and then in a change piece perspective, you are then seeing that same person two or three months later serving you a coffee in the, in the local change piece coffee bar or in an SAP office somewhere and speaking to that person and understanding that person was a father, a mother, a daughter, a sister. And, and, um, and that they, they still are, and they're still just a human being who's gone through a, a bit of a difficult period. And they, they aren't labeled with that same stereotype and stigma that we might've put on that person when walking past that person outside of the train station where we, where we originally saw them. And all of those everyday labels and stereotypes and uh, perspectives and things that we've got used to after the, um, over the last five, 10, 15, 20 years, that business has been taking place or we've been going about our everyday business Just taking an extra five minutes out of your week and just thinking, what have we got used to and what can we change? What can we do differently? And how can we make a change in the world that we live in that just from the perception change and that breaking the labels and the stereotypes change, can we make a difference to the world that we live in and and ultimately do good for, for nothing really. And I think that's something that's really exciting for me. It's coronavirus has allowed us to put a bit of a halt on on those, um, uh, those kind of automatic actions and make us readdress the way that we live. And I think that's, if we do that with a social tint to those um, glasses, and I think we can really come out of this in a really positive way.
0: Well, I couldn't think of a, a better message to end on myself. So like you say, it's it's really about rethinking the way we think we did things in the past and taking a new approach. Um, and that's certainly something we we live and breathe with an SAP and helping businesses get back to their best. But not necessarily the way they did things before um, thinking and readdressing those balances to ensure that we are doing good in the world. So uh, thank you so much. It's been really inspiring talking to you today and uh, appreciate your time, Jamal. So um, yeah, thank you for joining us on the podcast and hopefully we'll get to meet in person very soon. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Adam. That wraps up our episode focusing on social enterprise and business with purpose. So thanks to all four of our guests for joining us online to record their interviews remotely. That's Cecilia Crossley, Jamal Izell, Jamie Palmer and Kelvin Ward. And if you want to find out more about what we're doing with social enterprises in the UK, make sure you check out the show notes for a link to the relevant information. As always, I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion and please check out our other episodes if you haven't already. These can be downloaded from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening.